0: Thank <laughs> once again for queuing up Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. Today, it is Primary Source Monday, which means that the podcast today consists of me reading something important that was written or spoken by someone who was directly involved in the history of the Beaver State. Right now, we're in the middle of going through the oral histories collected and written up by the writers of the Works Progress Administration's Oregon Folklore Project during the Great Depression. These interviews follow a loose template The writers, usually Sarah B. Wren, Walker Winslow, Claire Churchill, or Andrew Sherbert, but there were a few others as well, have to answer a series of questions about the interviewee on the cover pages, along with the name and address of the person. I'll be reading those pages before we start as a sort of header on the oral history. The WPA, as you probably know, was a New Deal agency created by the government of Franklin Roosevelt during the 1930s to combat the Great Depression. The idea was that rather than lazily pumping money into the economy by bailing out failing banks and propping up failing businesses, like certain other administrations have done throughout the years since, we'd get something for it by putting the money in the hands of people who would spend every penny of it patronizing businesses and pumping up the economy. And whether or not that worked is for the political podcasters to wrangle about. But I don't mind telling you that I approve of the philosophy, not least of all because it sure yielded some good Oregon history stuff, stories that would have disappeared entirely if they hadn't. This is one of those stories. So let's get to it. This episode is part two, the final part of a two-part series, presenting the interview of Lewis Schumacher, pioneer Portland furrier, by Andrew Sherbert of the Federal Writers Project. As I said before, my first buying trip to Alaska was in eighteen ninety-seven. I made annual trips to Alaska from that year until nineteen twenty-three, when I went on my last buying expedition—twenty-five trips in all. Many people envied me. Many people envy me the experiences I had in Alaska. Alaska was and is a beautiful country. I used to visit Sitka. "'Ketchikan in Juneau. "'I bought my furs direct from the Aleut Indians. "'The Aleuts are funny people. "'They are very proud, proud of their race, "'proud of their accomplishments and abilities. "'You must not call them Indians, "'that is, if you intend doing business with them. "'They insist on being called natives. "'They are easily offended, "'and many a fur buyer cooked his own goose "'and went home empty-handed "'because he did or said something to one of them "'that went against the grain.' No amount of money will induce them to trade their furs with anyone they don't like. I always got along well with them because I tried to do business their way. For instance, the Elliotts positively would not trade for gold. They insisted that they be paid for their furs with silver dollars. Now, this was quite a nuisance, as you can imagine. If you went out with the intention of buying 500 or or $1,000 worth of furs in a day, you had to pack along a pretty heavy load of silver dollars. Ever try to pick up and carry a thousand silver dollars? No? Well, it's quite a weighty chunk. In those days, gold coins were common in the Northwest. In fact, more business transactions took place with gold than any other medium. Paper money was practically non-existent, and silver was common, though used only for small purchases and in change for gold coins of higher denominations. Many fur buyers simply would not cater to the Aleut's desire for silver money. They blusteringly intended to teach the Indians that the gold coin was legal tender and they would have to take it or else, but the Indians refused to be taught, and the stubborn fur buyer got no furs. I learned early in the game that if I was to make a success of the fur-buying business, I would have to face the situation as it was and not try to change things. I subsequently learned the Aleut habits and customs very thoroughly and also came to know the country up there like I knew the back of my hand. I never could understand how a buyer could go to all the trouble and expense of a trip from Portland or San Francisco or Seattle to Alaska and then Hold a penny so close to his eye he couldn't see a dollar at arm's length. A case in point, I once went out to do some buying in company with another fair buyer from the States. He was addicted to the habit of snuffing, rubbing snuff into his nose. The Aleut women chew snuff when they can get it. Young Aleut girls are very beautiful and slender and more or less careful about their persons— Their beauty fades quickly, however, following maturity. They get fat, waddly, and more or less unshapely. As soon as they begin to reach the stage of fat womanhood, they settle down to the tasks and habits of older women, and they begin to chew snuff. This buyer and myself were passing an aleut house before which two maturing girls stood. At this moment my friend chanced to pull out his snuff-box to take a pinch of snuff, The girls smiled and motioned to him to come on over and give them some. He refused. I said, go on over there and give them some of your snuff. Not me, said he, Lewis, if I were to hand them my snuff-box they would scoop out every bit of it, and I know because I have seen them do it to others. I said, you damned fool, what of it? Here we are going out to buy furs from their people, and you are running the risk of having these three girls spread the story that we are tight— "'Give me some of your snuff. When we get back to town, "'I'll see that you get your snuff-box filled up and plenty to spare.' "'He said, all right, Lewis, but just watch what they do to my snuff. "'He walked over and held out his snuff-box to them, "'and sure enough, each in turn scooped out a generous handful "'and crammed it into her mouth while thanking him profusely. "'What did I tell you, Lewis?' he said, "'showing me a practically empty snuff-box.' I claim I prove my point, however. Wouldn't it be foolish to let five or ten cents worth of snuff stand in the way of friendship with these people? Such short-sightedness often meant the difference between a successful buying trip and one of no profit at all. The Aleuts lived in square one-room houses. Each was a duplicate of the others, a big room with a stove in the center, a few chairs round here and there in the room. Sometimes there were no chairs, but boxes to sit on instead. The one room served as a living room, dining room, bedroom, and kitchen for a large family. The Aleuts are very polite and courteous to anyone they invite into their homes. I found that if they invited me and I had better go, or else they would be insulted. Many inexperienced buyers would approach the threshold, get one whiff of the interior, and then refuse to enter. Needless to say, their fur-buying expedition was doomed to dismal failure— However, you could not blame a man for not wanting to go inside. These Aleut homes invariably stank to high heaven. The Aleut diet consisted chiefly of fish, fish oil, fish cakes, fish meal, and just plain fish. Rancid fish oil is perhaps one of the most offensive smells a fellow can bump into. Blend this with the smell of fat, unwashed bodies and toss a pile of curling hides and pelts in the corner of a room and you have an Aleut home. In spite of the above description of an Aleut home, the Aleuts were quite modern and not like the Indians of Oregon and Washington of that day. When I first went up, there, Sitka was a flourishing town. The Aleuts were missionaried and civilized by the Russians as far back as the year 1800. Most of the Indians are members of the Greek Catholic Church, which was once the principal religion of Russia. Some of the Greek churches are very beautiful inside and exhibit relics and carvings and statues, etc. that would make some of our Portland art look pretty cheap and insignificant. I made regular trips to Alaska during the gold rush, but somehow I escaped getting bit by the gold fever and stuck to the fur business. I have always been glad that I did, for I knew many people who went up there to get rich and lost all that they had earned the hard way down here.' The alley divide their year into three fairly sharply defined seasons or periods. Winter and early spring are given to trapping. Late spring and early summer are spent gathering wood, and late summer and fall are devoted to fishing and sealing.' The Indian women are experts at making baskets from seaweed. These baskets are much finer in weave and workmanship than the finest Panama hats. So fine are they woven that they hold water without leaking a single drop, although they are not treated with wax or pitch or anything that would make them waterproof. Even the small basket takes a woman a long time to make. I was amused one time when the touring man and wife stopped before an exhibit of native baskets. The women thought the small basket was very pretty and asked the Indian how much it was. The Indian said that basket twenty-five. The woman's husband, apparently well-to-do and puffing on the big cigar, indifferently flipped a twenty-five-cent piece on the counter in front of the imperturbable Aleut who never made a move to reach for the coin.' The tourist was jolted out of his indifference and quickly registered respect for the small basket when the Aleut spoke. No cents, twenty-five dollars for basket. Sealing off the Alaska coast used to be anybody's game, but for a good many years now the Indians are the only ones that are allowed to catch seals, and they are only allowed to spear them. It's a sort of government monopoly. First seals are not quite so important now, though, because the Hudson seal, made from muskrat, has largely superseded the real seal. Speaking of seals, their mortal enemy in Alaska are the killer whales. No one was more surprised than I was when Portland's famous whale of a few years ago came up to Columbia. That whale certainly must have lost its bearings because I never heard of a killer whale coming so far south before. The Aleuts call them blackfish. They are very dangerous and fierce fighters. They make quick work of the seals which they find swimming out away from shore. These killer whales, which seldom grow to more than twenty-five feet in length, will attack the big sulfur-bottom whales and kill them off quite as easily as they attack any smaller fish. They reach right into the big whale's jaws and then bite out the tongue— They also cut and slash the big whale's throat and belly until it dies, either from wounds or starvation. What furs did I buy on my trips to Alaska? Uh, Mink, otter, blue, gray, red, black, and white fox, lynx, marten, wolverine. The wolverine is the strongest animal in the world for its size. Kodiak bearskin, sea otter, fur seal. The Kodiak bear is a huge animal, weighs as much as 2,500 pounds. The skin of this bear was highly popular as a floor rug. I bought many of them back in the early days, but no one would think of having one of them on their parlor floor now. The sea otter was always an expensive fur. In the old days they cost as much as $150 to $200, which was very high then, but now they are virtually extinct, and prime pelts bring from $1,250 to $1,500 each. Mink is another fur which has increased a great deal in price. In those days we paid around $1.25 for a good pelt. They are worth from 8 to $10 now. Muskrat pelts were worth five cents each in those days. We pay a dollar apiece for them now, although the all-time high for muskrat was during the war when they went up to $5. I have seen many changes in the fur business since I have been in it, but the most significant change, of course, is the effect artificial or synthetic furs had on the trade. Before 1900 there were no artificial furs. Furs were the real, genuine thing. Seal was seal, mink was mink, otter was otter. Since the turn of the century, however, almost any kind of natural fur has been duplicated by lord only knows how many different methods. In many cases, the artificial product is almost, if not quite as good, as the genuine article. Take, for instance, Hudson's seal. My son, who is an expert in his own right, claims that Hudson's seal is superior in texture, appearance, and durability to real seal. Probably because I'm still old-fashioned, I argue that real seal is better. Who wins the argument? That's an open question. Hudson's seal is made from muskrat. We do the preliminary work on the muskrat pelts in our own shop. The pelts have many thousands of coarse long hairs, which we call guide hairs. These have to be pulled out one by one. When the guide hairs are removed, that leaves the short, fine, beautiful hair from which the garment is made. We have to send the pelts back to New York to be dyed. Nobody here on the coast knows how it is done. It's a secret process which originated in Germany.' In recent years, most every kind of fur that ever grew on any kind of animal has been cleverly duplicated in appearance by the use of rabbit skins. Of late years, the fox has been raised in captivity for fur. There is quite a little turnover in fox fur at present. The latest fur-bearing animal to be domesticated is the mink, Quite a few mink farms have sprung up in Oregon lately. Most people do not think of Oregon as much of a trapping country in this day and age, but as a matter of fact, there's quite a lot of trapping going on here. We buy furs every day from Oregon trappers. Oregon still produces muskrat, marten, mink, raccoon, skunk, otter, red and gray fox, and there used to be a lot of beaver, but beaver trapping is now closed to trappers in Oregon by law. Coyote skins also come in fair volume. "'Coyote fur is too heavy for a garment, but makes very beautiful neck pieces. "'Do I think the world is getting any better? "'Well, hardly. You may take these days. I'll take the good old days. "'I'm inclined to think that the good old days were really were the good old days. "'Human nature hasn't changed a whole lot, though, with the passing of the years, "'at least as we see it in the fur business. "'You have to watch both ends of the deal or you'll come out of the little end of the horn.' Radio has made it possible for the trappers to know exactly what their pelts are worth before they bring them to us. A thing that always strikes me as remarkable, though, is the fact that when the prices of a certain kind of fur declines, the fellow who brings his pelts in hasn't heard about the price falling. That's always the time his radio goes dead or something, I guess. Does my mind ever wander back to the Germany in which I was born? Oh, yes, occasionally... I guess we needn't discuss the changes that have taken place over there since I was a boy in Baden. Speaking of Germany, however, here's a coincidence that seems remarkable to me and probably will to you. My son Fred was a soldier in the World War. He fought with the 8th Infantry and rose to the rank of sergeant. It was his luck to be in the Army of the Occupation after the war ended, and he was stationed in Germany for a year after the signing of the armistice. During his service in Germany, he frequently traveled to Baden where he visited my aged father, his grandfather, whom he had never seen and never would have seen if it had not been for the war. My father was very pleased to see his grandson, even though this grandson bore arms against the country in which my father spent his entire life. Fred was at my father's side when the old man passed away. All right, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. You will find the source materials for this reading along with tons of other great writers project works online in PDF form from the Library of Congress. That's at loc.gov/collections/federal-writers-project. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of our Primary Source Monday specials in which we examine the actual words of someone who made history in the beaver state in the form of oral histories, amateur autobiographies, vintage newspaper articles, and so forth. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at finn at Episodes of Offbeat Organ History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday morning, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. And until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.